Scripture for tonight is John 20, 24, verses, tw- verses 24 to 29. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand to his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Michael. Hey, guys. uh, Keith Case, pastor here at Providencia. And um, we had our um, planning meeting yesterday with our staff. I'm super excited to uh, think and dream about the future now that we're able to come back into this space and worship with each other um, and just dream together about uh, this rest of the summer and the fall and into the new year in the spring. So uh, really excited about the new things that um, God's been putting on our hearts and just that we see kind of opening up for us uh, as we move forward as a church. As Drew said, it's just so good to be back together, to hear voices, uh, to be in this room and not be alone. Uh, Back when COVID started, uh, I was preaching, or Drew was preaching, and there was nobody here. And it was just so weird. Uh, And it was such a weird energy for us to not be able to see your faces and see you all. Um, Tonight, as we continue our series, we're, uh, for the rest of the summer, uh, we're in this series called Embody. And um, tonight, the scripture that Michael read is from the Gospel of John. And um, we see there that Thomas, who is one of the followers of Jesus, was not there after Jesus has been crucified. Uh, He has died, and he has been buried, and he has come, and he has appeared to the other followers. Uh, But Thomas was not there. Thomas was not there. And and Thomas gets this, this name Uh, that a lot of people know him by in church history, which is Doubting Thomas. Um, He gets this name because, in many ways, from this this verse that we see here, where Thomas says, I won't believe until I see the nail marks um, in his hands and until I see the the, um, cut in his side, the wound in his side. And in many ways, what Thomas is saying, until I see the scars, I'm not going to believe. And, and where Jesus ends up taking Thomas's comment, the level of intimacy that I believe Jesus takes that to is so profound and beyond uh, what Thomas maybe was even asking. Uh, but Thomas is there, and Jesus appears before uh, the other followers and Thomas is there and Thomas has the spotlight put on him. And Jesus invites him not just to see 
the scars, um, but he invites him to touch them. He invites Thomas to come and touch and believe. And such a profound um, thing that Jesus is doing there. Uh, one of the joys of my uh, time as a pastor is that I get to connect with people uh, throughout the week. And, and sometimes I do that uh, through story group. Uh, sometimes I do that through, uh, you know, Sunday night worship. And sometimes I get to go have lunch, lunch with people and uh, just one-on-ones or, you know, maybe in small groups. And a few years ago, I believe now, uh, I got to have lunch with Israel Valderas. And Israel is going to come up here. Um, come on up, Israel. Uh, Israel and uh, Jill and their daughter, Isabel, who I don't think she's in here right now. Um, but they have been a part of our church family now uh, for a while. And they have been such a gift to us. Uh, one of the things that we actually have missed out on because of COVID is that Jill used to pray uh, with Stepha for people during uh, communion at the back of the church. Do you guys remember that? It's like a year and a half ago. It seems like it was like 10 years ago. Um, but I would tell people, I'd be like, has, has Jill prayed for you yet? Have you, have you been prayed for by Jill? And uh, I think Emily was the first person I told to like, you should go get prayed for by Jill. And, and once you had that experience, people could tell you, man, what a powerful experience that was um, to be prayed for. And just grateful for Jill and her ministry here uh, over the years and, and praying for people who've been in need and people who just have been, you know, walking through life and the challenges of life. So just grateful for you, um, Jill, and grateful for Israel. Uh, if you have been at a PBA, uh, if you've been a PBA student, I see clapping back there, yeah. Uh, if you've been a PBA student, if you um, have been on campus and witnessed Israel Balderas in action, this is kind of what it looks like. Uh, he's talking to a student, and he's like, oh, man, that work you did was just amazing. Oh, and this is my other friend. This is Pastor, my friend, Pastor Keith. Have you met him? This, this student is amazing. The work they're doing here, the journalism, the all, always affirming students. Right? Have you got anybody here seen that? Celeste's seen that because she's, yeah, yeah, uh huh. Melton's see that, yeah. And it's just one of these things that Israel always is so excited about his students. He's always encouraging them in public. Man, if I had only had uh, teachers like that, right? I mean, what a game changer. What a game changer and what a gift to see him. Um, sadly, you are moving on. Yes, and uh, they are going to, the Balders are going to North Carolina, to Elon, North Carolina, to Elon University. That's correct. You have a new role. Uh, you're going to be serving, teaching uh, legal or journalism law. Uh, right? First Amendment law. First Amendment law. First Amendment. Moving more towards uh, teaching media law and not as much journalism, although I will be teaching journalism, but now I will be using my legal background instead of my news background. Amazing. Um, so we're sad that you guys are leaving. Um, we also know that Elon is getting an incredible gift uh, with you guys. And uh, we're going to pray for you guys at the end of this time together. Thank you. Um, but I just wanted to bring Israel here because we were having lunch. We were talking, and I was obviously preparing for this sermon. And I don't even know how it came up when we were eating lunch that day on Clematis. Uh, you asked me about the scar. Yeah, that's, that's always a kind of a dangerous question to ask people, right? A little risky is like, so where did you get that scar? And, uh, but I did it anyway. You did, and you were intrigued by my answer. 
Yes. Yes. So could, my, could you give us a little uh, story here? My, with... my, my answer is always, boy, that is a great story. Uh, if you ever have a couple of hours, I will be more than happy to tell you about it. And I think I said, well, I have a couple hours. So, <laughs> yeah. and we're not gonna—it's not gonna take a couple hours tonight. Um, <laughs> you just didn't know that you were gonna <laughs> be here for a couple of hours. This is your this is your bon voyage. So take all the time you <laughs> sure, want. Sure, right? absolutely. Yeah, yeah. People are watching at home. Stephanie Bennett's exactly, watching. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. And we have we have to say that uh, Yoda is here tonight. The uh, great one. Dr. Wright is here. Dr. Gerald Wright, Wright and his wife, Kathy. With his wife, yes. Uh, um, one of my closest friends, yes. um, more than a mentor. Uh, we're actually going camping and hiking next week uh, to, the, uh, to the Appalachian Trail. Appalachian Trail. So we're preparing. Hopefully Amazing. our wives uh, won't be getting a call saying, can yeah. you come and pick us up at a hospital? Yeah, with, with more scars. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. More stories, yeah. So, so I asked you about the scar, though, and you said, well, it's a long story, but then I said, well, we got some time, so yeah. then uh, you started telling me. Sure. Um, I'm a little nervous, i got to be honest with you, because uh, this scar has, has, has uh, big implications, and I think uh, the shift in paradigm of how I saw this scar uh, my whole life versus really the profound way you saw it uh, changed, really. Um, my life. Um, and the last time I told this story, I, I, I lied to God, uh, and I was in the church. So bear with me if I start crying, because uh, it's a little, heft, uh, little crazy. Um, so my story starts when I was 10 years old. I was in fifth grade. I can tell you the date. It was September 24th, uh, 1980. Um, I, was, uh, I was playing uh, flag football after school, and I was supposed to walk home from the school to my home. It was about two and a half miles away. Normally, I would pick a bus, and the bus would drop me off. Uh, but on that day, I, I didn't want to walk home. And I had the, the great idea that um, there were 18-wheelers uh, in El Paso, Texas. Uh, they have Interstate 10, and then they have a gateway boulevard system. You know, it's the streets that run along uh, the interstate. And there would be 18-wheelers um, that would drive by, and they would drive by my house. And I thought, you know, <clears throat> I really don't want to walk home. Uh, I, I'm a little lazy. And so I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to hop on the back of an 18-wheeler bed, and I'm going to hitch a ride. And then when it passes by my house... Without asking. Without asking, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. You know, just climb to the back. You know, the doors, the hinges, they have that step stool. And I thought... Yeah, sure, when it passes by my house, it will stop, and I will be able to get off, and it'll be awesome. And so that's what I did. I got into the back of an 18-wheeler. Uh, the problem is that it didn't go by my house. It started to get on the interstate, uh, which meant that it started picking up speed, 40, 50, 60 miles an hour as it got onto the freeway, and I thought, holy cow, I'm going to end up in Albuquerque uh, if I don't get off. So then I got another brilliant idea, and that was, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to put my feet down as the truck is moving, and then I will be able to just run and then stop. Because I'd seen it on the movies. Yeah. Skateboarders, pretty, skateboarders know about this situation. Yeah. Absolutely. I think yeah. at that time, yeah. maybe it would have been not Back to the Future yet, you know, when uh, um, Marty was riding in the back of the truck, but it was something like that. So I did that, and then I blank out. 
I don't know how long I was out, but I got up, and I thought it worked. It worked, and I started walking, and then I realized I had blood all over my face. Uh, and I had blood all over my legs and my shirt, and my shoe had come off. It had broken. The front part had broken off where I stepped in. And so I walked home, and when I got home, I heard my mom. She was in the bathroom giving my sister a bath. And when I walked into the bathroom, all I heard was my mom screaming. And, you know, she speaks Spanish, so you all know how this goes. Ay, mi hijo, ¿cómo pasó? ¿Qué te pasó? And she's screaming out of the top of her lung, right? And she, what happened to you? What happened? And I look in the mirror, and half of my face looks like Two-Face. You know, I got, just, it, was, um, it was burned off. My, I, can see my, I can see my muscle on my elbow and my shoulder. Um, like I said, my jeans were torn off. And I felt that I started to black out. But she said, what happened to you? And right before I blacked out, I told my mom, somebody tried to kidnap me. And that was it. And then you were out. I yeah. was out. Okay. For three days. For three days, yeah. 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 So um, imagine that scene, right? Um, your child walks in the front door <laughs> covered in blood, uh, looking like Two-Face, and, uh, and then they tell you, you ask them what happened, they pass out right as they're passing out. They say, somebody tried to kidnap me. And then three days later, you wake up. So it's stage two, right? Scene two. And I always get the same reaction, right? You heard it right now. I heard it from this crowd over here. Scene one, you say it, and people are like, nah, no way, right? That's the first part. The second is going to be even more like, you're kidding me. And then the third will be like, no, it's all a lie. But nobody believes the second part. So I wake up in the hospital three days later. Um, I was out for three days. Uh, skin grafts. Uh, all over my face. I had had a second, second to third degree burn on half of my face. My lips had been burned shut, so they had to cut it open. My eye had been um, kind of seared over, so they had to cut it open. And then uh, third degree burn, this is the big scar, but the second big scar is here in my shoulders, from here to here, all the way down in my elbows. Second degree burn, knees, uh, third degree burns. Uh, no broken bones. That was the miracle, no broken bones. But I come to, and I see my stepdad, I see my mom, and then I see two police officers, El Paso PD finest. And the police officers are there because for the last three days, my mom has been on TV demanding that the city of El Paso find the two would-be uh, kidnappers who are in El Paso kidnapping young Hispanic boys. Um, and, and, and so you, you can imagine the evening news, right? Uh, city streets terrorized for our children. You know, uh, the evil doers are out, free. What is El Paso police doing to find them? Um, I've, I've, I've been there with those headlines. So the police officers, they want to know what happened. And I had a minute, two minutes. To, I could have told them the truth, but I said, why not? Let's keep lying. And so I said, well... Here's what happened. I was walking from school. I pull up to this intersection, and a brown Monte Carlo pulls up. 
How was that specific, by the way? This is in the 80s in El Paso, Texas. How many people drive Monte Carlos at that time? Oh, probably a good 30, 40%. Yeah. That it's was like the my, Honda think- Accord my of thinking was give them as broad of a lie as possible, right? Because the more I tell them the lie, they're not going to find the two would be uh, kidnappers. Uh, so, two people driving a Monte Carlo, uh, brown, Hispanic people. I had to go after my own kind. Uh, they tried. <laughs> To say, oh yeah, chico, venga para acá. And they're like, they pull me to the car. All of a sudden, they open the door. They grab me. They sped off. But then I started to fight back, right? I'm kicking. I'm punching them. I opened the door. And then I got out. And then they sped off. So that's what I told them. And I, and I stuck by that story for a long time, right? So now they're looking for two Latinos driving a brown Monte Carlo. And I'm thinking, I got away with it. And your, mom, and your mom's on the news still every night. Well, now my mom goes on the news and to say, canijos, hijos de su madre, we're coming after you, right? It's like my mom now is Rambo. She is, she's, uh, watch out, right, out, right? So there's a bunch of people, you know, with Monte Carlo saying, orale, vamonos, <laughs> get rid of the car. Parked it in the garage for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's what the cops were doing, and the news for the next week or two was, be on the lookout for two Latinos in a city where 65% are Latinos. Uh, you know, if you can help us, uh, call Crime Stoppers at uh, 915-555-8585. Uh, and that, that's, that's what happened, right? And so it's a great story because now I go back to school two weeks later, and I'm this big shot. I mean, the kids, I'm in fifth grade, and they're like, oh, my goodness, Israel, you, you, you fought back. And I'm feeling like, this is a great story, man. This is great. The problem is the police go to my mom. And they said, look, we haven't gotten any tips about some Monte Carlo. But people have called us and said, you know, we remember there was a kid riding on an 18-wheeler. Is there any chance that might be your son? Now, my mom, she was like, hijos de su madre. I mean, she was like, how dare you? You're just being lazy. You just don't want to do your job, right? You're letting this 10-year-old poor, innocent child be traumatized by kidnappers. Do your job. And she goes in the news and says, you know, they're not doing their job. Uh, And so that's the way it was for uh, the month of October. Yeah. So then what happened? So then I used to go to this church called Puerta del Cielo. It's the door of heaven. It was Hispanic. Pretty big church? Uh, You know, 300, 400. This is 1980, you know, sort of the evangelical movement, right? Charismatic church type. Um, Name it and claim it, bag it and tag it. It, It's that kind of church, especially for uh, the Hispanic community. And the, the pastor comes to my mom and says, you know, God was looking out for your son the day they tried to kidnap him. Do you think your son would like to testify about God's goodness in church on a Sunday morning? That would really uplift the spirit of these fine believers. So my mom says, Hola, mijo. Vaya para allá. Dígales lo que dijo Dios. Tell, tell everybody what God did for you. So as you can imagine, this is, this is uh, scene three. Yeah. This is the one that people at this point, I lose. Yeah. Um, so I said, sure, why not? 
I, I've, I've been a lazy ass. I've been a liar. Why not be a blasphemer? And so I got in front of the church, and I told them how God's Holy Spirit indwelled in me that day. Because I did have the Holy Spirit. I had already been baptized twice, <laughs> once in a swimming pool, once in a tub. Uh, so, yeah. Cover all know, the bases there. I spoke yep. in tongues. I was charismatic. So for me, you know, that was powerful. Uh, and I told him that the Holy Spirit had been indwelling in me, that he was present in that day. And, you know, I'm in. I'm in. Gracias a Dios. And I'm telling them that God was there to save me from the kidnappers. And at that point, the psyche of a 10-year-old broke down. And that night, I was just bawling. I was crying because I, I thought, that's it. You know what I mean? I'm, there's... There's bad things that can happen to you, and, and one of them is lying before God and before believers. And so I was crying, and my, it was my stepfather who heard me first um, crying, and then he couldn't believe it. So then he told my mom, and when my mom heard what had happened, and I confessed, she didn't, she didn't say anything, which is the worst thing that could happen, right, from a Latina mom. Um, silence, pure silence. And for the next month, um, didn't talk to me, no food, no eating, do your own clothes. I mean, just persona non grata. And finally, it was Thanksgiving when they told the whole family, Travieso, Israel, Travieso, that was my nickname, Doubting Thomas, um, uh, Dennis the Menace, this is what he had done. And, and they just, they couldn't believe that I had done all that. And that was, that was the story that I had all my life with regards to the scar. Um, what happened afterwards was, was kind of sad. Um, my uncle on my father's side thought I had serious psychological problems for doing something like that. So I saw a counselor for about a year and a half. Uh, the conclusion which was he needs to go to a boys military um, school because he's got a lot of anger issues. Uh, my father, uh, who didn't want to have anything to do with me, my mom convinced him that what I needed the most was to be around a dad who didn't want to be with me and who liked to uh, womanize in front of me and drink in front of me, but that was supposed to be really, really good for me and keep me healthy. Uh, and that was, that was my story for the longest time. Until I told you the story. And then the reaction you had was this reaction. So Israel's telling me the story the whole time, and at the, at the time, you, it was kind of like, you know, a little bit of like, there was like an embarrassment or like a shame, a shame shame, no doubt, for the story. No doubt, no doubt. And I'm just like, you got to tell me more. Like, I'm just curious. I want to learn more and more. And the whole time you're sharing this story, I'm just thinking, which I'm assuming some of you guys are thinking, is like, what an innovative kid. <laughs> what an adventurous kid. The kid's like at school. He's like, man, how can I get home fast? You know, it's a little hot today. How about that 18-wheeler right there? And then the, um, you know, the, the kind of like the courage, if you will, to just kind of keep going. I mean, at 10 years old, I don't know when the last time you saw a 10-year-old was, but um, our daughter Maddie, who's, who's pretty tall, she's 12. Um, so if you can just you know shrink down a little bit for a 10-year-old kid to have this adventure, I just thought this is a freaking movie. 
I mean, that's what I thought. I was like, this story has to be told. And in fact, I told you at the time, I was like, I really want more people to know this story. You did. And then uh, I shared it in group uh, with the guys that are in my story group. group. Yeah, yeah, story group. Yep. Um, and I told them the story. And, and what I, was their reaction? Uh, it was the same thing at first. They didn't <laughs> believe it. Uh, they thought I was lying again. Uh, but this time I really wasn't, I promise. <laughs> Uh, and it's exactly the way, I, you know, normally I would turn to my wife at this point, who at least has verified it through two sources. Yes. That's exactly the story, and I haven't um, added anything to it. Yes. Um, but I think the hardest thing was, was the, the wound, right, that um, my mom was so angry. Hmm. Um, and, and that it, it took, because, you know, I had my cousins from my father's side who were at that school. Uh, surely my father knew what had happened to me, uh, but he never reached out. He never said, hey, what happened? Um, and even till this day, you know, still my father doesn't want to talk to me, doesn't want to have, have a relationship. So I think in group we shared the wound, right? And I think I, I, I've thought about Thomas um, and the wound that he had. Um, because to me, you know, we think that doubting Thomas started in, in John 20. But it really started in John 14, right, when Jesus is trying to comfort his disciples. And it's Thomas who says, we don't know where you're going, so how do we know the way? To me, Tom, Thomas, the twin, was already having a crisis of faith. And so for me, this was always a, a matter of shame. And yet I thought, you know, God was there. He really was. And then sort of the irony, right, my whole career has been based on putting my face on camera. And I don't know how that ever happened. Um, I'm very dark skinned, as you guys can tell, but if, if, I, haven't, if I don't have my, my tan, you can see the scars on my face. Um, you can see, still see the scar on my lip where it was cut. And yet, you know, I didn't have on my face, I could've. So I always thought, well, at least, no matter how bad I was, God was good. And now, as we are being challenged to rethink who is God in our lives, what is church, and thanks to your help, which you have done for a lot of us, is to shift the paradigm and to go, how would your life have been if you had said, instead of, you are a liar, you are a lazy ass, and you are a blasphemer, if you had believed through your family and through your friends, you were adventurous, you were courageous, you were creative, life would be different. And I wonder, Thomas had to live with the idea of doubting Thomas. But that was not his story, right? We know Gerald would tell us the wonderful things that Thomas did for the Eastern Church. And I think for me, that has been the journey. Um, to look at my scar and to say, it's not what I can touch and what I can feel, but it's what I can believe. I can believe that I am courageous. I can believe that I am adventurous. And it's, it's been hard. It's not easy at times. Uh, even after you and I talked about how do you shift the paradigm, I had this idea of getting a tattoo on my arm. Uh, I, I love people who have tattoos. Tattoos represent a major story. And I had a great tattoo that I wanted it to come out of the ground to show life and a vine wrapping around my arm with the Celtic cross, showing that this was not who I am anymore. Um, 
and I didn't do it because I have a seven-year-old, and I could see my seven-year-old saying, well, why can't I have a tattoo? Dad, you have a tattoo. Uh, um, but I think what you've been able to help me through these conversations is we are not our scars. We are not what we can see. It's what we believe um, in our hearts. Man, thank you so much, Israel, for um, sharing that story. I mean, when I asked you to do it um, tonight, I you know, was like, I wonder if the last time he told that story publicly was in a church. I didn't, yeah. And that, um, you know, even though you had a lot of shame around this scar, that um, you took the risk of sharing it with me, the story behind it. And then, you know, years later that you would be here sharing it publicly like this. And there would be times people would ask me, what happened there? Yeah. And I would lie. Sure. I kept lying. Yeah. I got in an accident. I, I fell off. Yeah. But I never told it until I could trust people. You know what I mean? Yeah. I could, oh, if you really want to know my story, you'll understand this scar. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the very few people that I know that are here, yeah. um, as I leave, I, I remember a group of people that I was vulnerable enough to say, um, you know, I look back and I'm not, I'm not ashamed anymore. Amazing. I'm grateful. <clears throat> Thank you. Yes, thank you, man. Um, yeah, and I just wanted it to be made into a movie. Um, and I want more people to know the story. And, um, and you know, there's a, a story that I, I, I share about a musician. And he basically says that the song that he wrote was a story of shame, a song of shame, but that the, the crowd turned it into an anthem. It was yeah. um, Eddie Vedder, right? Yeah. Uh, with Alive. And... Um, and that they lifted the curse uh, of shame off of him. And uh, I know for all of us with our shame, it's a journey. Um, but this community is a place, um, and, and there'll be a community, as we pray for you all, where you all go, that will continue to not only lift the shame, but they'll enter in, touch the shame, and lift the shame. Uh, to bring that kind of healing. Um, when we <clears throat> tie this back, see, there's no, there's real no tie back to the gospel scripture that we read tonight. I just wanted you guys to know this story. Um, no, there is. Um, <laughs> that the thing that I, the thing that I, I, I was so hit by um, in the gospel uh, narrative from, from Thomas and Jesus's interaction is that something about uh, Thomas is switched when Jesus invites him to touch his wounds, uh, to touch his scars, to touch his body. Um, and we're not, we don't, we don't know all of what that is, what all happened in that moment that was so transformative for him. But the thing that has really impacted me as a believer is that because of God's love for us that is displayed in his scars, you know, we as Christians, we follow the God who has scars. I, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but uh, this week, you know, maybe just kind of meditate on that reality that we have a God, we follow a God who still has his scars, um, who knows what it is like to suffer, um, who knows what it is like uh, in this world um, to experience pain. And, um, and that God is inviting us 
to let our wounds be touched by him and by each other. And in this community, it actually happens. In the church, it actually happens that because of the gospel, we don't have to hide. Um, And we get to come out of hiding and be seen and be loved, and it is transformative. And I, and I will say this, because my wife and I, we've been probably, you know, besides the house and where we're going to live, our bigger conversations have been, where are we going to find church? Mm-hmm. It's not easy anymore, right? We're going to a town where everybody is excited that three churches in town are pastored by people who went to Liberty. That's not exactly, right, a, a, a high praise for me. Um, and I was having coffee with Scott, and I said, you know, my biggest worry is to have this. Mm-hmm. I don't have this. This is, this mm-hmm. is precious. This mm-hmm. is... This is valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of you all know our story, my wife and I. I, I came to church here uh, when my wife and I were separated, uh, and we were separated for two years. Um, and, and so there was shame, right? I'm, I'm a teacher at a Christian university, and I'm um, separated from my wife. And yet we found a community that loved me. You love me, and you embraced me. The, the guys embraced me, and then my wife also she found love, um, you know, Claire, uh, and she had friends uh, mm-hmm. with who she fell in love with. And together we were able to have friends who then never uh, judged us of what we were going through. Uh, and Stefa, who's watching, she's the one that invited us here because yeah. she knew this was the place to find this healing. Yeah. Um, and so I leave you with, with that thought that what you have built here is a community where you do shift people's paradigms mm. and to say there is a greater purpose for you. Mm. Uh, and we leave here, you know, um, you know, more, more in love who, who God really is. Um, but at the same time, you know, saying hopefully we can find this because this is precious. Mm. This, is, this is, I've been a Christian since I was 10. And this was the first time that I really felt like I'm with a group of believers who are walking with me to know God, not to know church, not to know theology, but to know God. And so thank you for being my friend. I really appreciate that. You're so welcome.